Luke 15 records what may be the most memorable of Christ's parables. It's that of the prodigal son. It tells of a wayward son who wanted out of his father's household, wanted to go the way of the world. And so he demanded an early inheritance. His father gave it to him. And so off he went. He went away to a distant country. And there it says he squandered his whole estate, all the money he had received on loose living. He indulged in all the lust of the flesh. He said yes to every desire and he had the bankroll to do so. But what do you know? The high didn't last. This nonstop party came to an end as his money ran out. The friends he bought weren't real friends. The companions he bought weren't real companions. And then the feeling of happiness he bought wasn't real either. And he was left impoverished, destitute, and alone. He was even starving, so he had to hire himself out as a day laborer, just feeding swine. And you remember, for a Jewish audience, that's about the the most unclean job imaginable. He hit rock bottom, and it says this in verse 17. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He had eaten to the full of his desires, but he was still hungry. He found no lasting satisfaction there. The bread of iniquity proved false, but he remembered the bread in his father's house was good. But being humbled, he recognized his sin. He owned it. He realized he had sinned against heaven, God himself, and against his father. He admitted he was not worthy to be accepted back. He was not worthy to be forgiven, reconciled, nothing. Wasn't even worthy to be called a son. But he was going to go back anyway and cast himself on the mercy of his father. And who knows, maybe he would hire him back as as a worker. And so it says in verse 20, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. This really is an amazing response. The father had not forgotten about his son and clearly was longing for his return. And first glance, he saw him a long ways off and could immediately tell he was humbled. And so he felt compassion for him and ran to him to embrace him. We expect a response of wrath, indignation. At least make the son pay back the inheritance but he just gets mercy. It says in verse 21, the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And the prodigal deserved condemnation. But he received mercy, forgiveness, and acceptance. And it's remarkable. It's no mystery in this parable that the father represents God himself. The prodigal represents wayward Israel that can be applied to any wayward sinner. And this parable resonates so much with us because it shows us God's heart toward those who repent. He's a holy and just God. And God has a righteous hatred of sin. 
it is a good and right thing for God to hate sin and to judge sin. That's righteous. But here we'll remember that God is also gracious, compassionate, and forgiving. He is one who runs to embrace those who turn away from their sins and return to him. You know, earlier in Luke 15, Jesus himself said that all heaven celebrates when one sinner repents. That's the God we have. That's the heart of the God we have. And we might ask, you know, what other God is like this? What other God cares for and loves his creation like this? What other God would, I don't know, send his own son, sacrifice his own son to save his creation, to redeem them and to forgive them? I mean, talk about unworthy. We don't deserve that. But God shows his supreme love to us in Christ. And these truths all come together and they show us just how much better it is in the father's house. We can all be like the prodigal. We can stray into the world, maybe allured by the lust of the flesh. And some wander pretty far. They, they go after vanity. But I hope you learn one way or another that it's not better over there. The way of the world is death. The world is passing away and so are its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so we would say better is one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. And why would you go anywhere else? Just go to him. And if you've played the prodigal, as you, as you may have stumbled into sin, well, also learn what to do next. And that is to repent and return. And don't, don't stay in the world. Don't remain in the muck and the mire of the pig pen. You've got to come to your senses, get up, and then go back to the father's house, so to speak. It's a house of peace. And righteousness, and you can learn he will accept you back there, but you've got to get up and go. And it's the same message that comes to us this morning from James chapter 4. You can open your Bibles there now as we finish this section in James chapter 4. And James likewise tells us who stray to repent and return. It's time to come back. And he assures us that God will accept and restore. But you have to get up and go. This, this lesson really began at the end of chapter 3 in James. You know, back in 3.15, we learned that the wisdom of the world was starting to infiltrate the church. Those in the, the early church even were buying into the world's wisdom, the world's thinking, the world's values, the world's ways. And so they were becoming like the world. And they were being marked by the same jealousy, selfish ambition, and concern for self. But then what do you think happens when you have a bunch of self-centered people and they kind of bump into each other? Conflict, disorder, and every evil thing, James says. And so the church was bearing this fruit. And so James in chapter 4 goes on to talk about conflict. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he exposes the source of conflict. He asked, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? And we found the answer. It's, it's not other people. It's you, your own heart, your own selfish desires. And when your selfish desires are frustrated, well, you're going to create your own conflict. And then in verses 4 through 6, he exposes the fuel of conflict. We found that last week. And it is basically friendship with the world. And when Christians go astray and they seek acceptance by the world. They care more about 
what the world thinks of them than what God thinks of them. It leads them to be conformed to the world. They don't realize that that act in itself is fueling all the lusts of their flesh, which in turn are fueling all their conflicts in life. The way of the world really is strife. And it's just impossible for the, the Christian to follow God and follow the world at the same time. There is a way out though. There's a path of peace. And we find that in our passage for this morning, verses 7 through 10 of James 4. It's the right response to our sin and our conflict. We find the resolution of conflict. And James does not bother with trivial advice like, you know, when you're upset, count to three or, or take a deep breath. No, he knows that our sinful desires are to blame for, for the sin and the conflict in our lives. And so the solution is really going to boil down to repent. Right? Repentance is what's needed. We don't need to blame others. Just look to yourself and where your own heart has led you astray and, well, repent and return. We've strayed from God and his ways. That's why we have all of our trouble and conflict. We have given into the lust of our flesh, and that's why we fight with others. And so the solution is to repent of our sins, even at a heart level, and return to God. We need to be reconciled with God himself vertically, getting our hearts right before him. And then and only then will we find peace with others horizontally. As we return to God, seek his ways, and submit to his wisdom, we'll find transformed values in life, transformed desires in life. And that, what, what that means is we'll be fighting conflict at the source, as we learn. It's all those desires of the heart. Only when you order your life around God's will and not your own will, will you experience peace. And that's what the church is meant to be, by the way. It's a body of people who are no longer just living this life purely concerned with themselves and their own will. No, but now they've come together to seek God and his will. And if everyone could just get on that same page and, and really come together, truly living for Christ, to deny self, pick up your cross, follow him. If, if everyone in the church were really on that same page, well, then you'd see the unity and the peace and the harmony that Christ said you would see. And that would allow the church to do great things and become a great witness to the world. And so it's really not that complicated. When you live life all about you and your will, well, sin, disorder, and conflict are the result. But when you live life all about God and his will, well, you find love, joy, and peace. It's just better in the Father's house. And so we all need to heed James's message here. In verses 7 through 10 this morning, he gives us 10 rapid-fire commands urging us to repent and return. And they can be boiled down to, we might say, four checkpoints on the path of peace. So we'll try and find this morning. Four checkpoints, if you will, on the path of peace. These aren't steps per se because they're not in a special order, but as you pass through these checkpoints, they ensure that you're right with God and, and then you'll find yourselves getting right with others. You're going to experience the peace that God designed for the church. So let's learn about these and then apply these checkpoints on the path of peace. Starting with this, number one, submission. Submission. 
James has a string of commands for us, but it begins in verse 7 with this overarching command. We'll read as we go, but look at verse 7. It begins and says, submit, therefore, to God. In light of everything we've learned, therefore, submit yourself to God. This is where the path of peace starts. Reconciliation has to start with submission to God. Rebellion against God and his will. Wouldn't you say that's what got us into trouble in the first place? That's what spawned our conflict. And that's what was happening with these early Christians. Remember back in verse 4, their friendship with the world, their spiritual adultery led them into hostility with God. They were befriending the world that was feeding all of the sinful desires of the flesh and it was exploding into conflict with others because they weren't getting their way. And it all can be traced back to they, they weren't submitting themselves to God and his will. And so if you want to resolve conflict, what's going to start there? You have to submit yourself back to God and his will. The way back, he says in verse 6, God gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And humility is needed here. And that same spirit of humility will be revisited later in verse 10. But this humility that, that God sees, it, it fundamentally involves ending your rebellion. You must, in humility, give up living for yourself entirely and, and your own will. And instead, you return to Christ and you submit to his will. This is the one who finds God's grace and favor. You know, the wild horse that refuses to be broken, it jumps, it kicks, it bites is of no use to its owner. But the horse that quickly breaks and submits is a joy to its master and will be useful for many things. Well, you need to just quickly break, humble yourself, submit to God, stop resisting him, and and trust that he is a good master. This word submit, hupotasso, it means to place yourself under, to come under someone or something and we ask what? Here, to come under God's sovereign authority and Christ's lordship. I mean, would you acknowledge that God as your creator has the right to tell you what to do and to direct your life? And when you even say that his will is, is actually good, it's going to be the best thing you could do because he is good and perfect as well. It's not like he's telling us to do things that are evil or, or not good for us even. His will is perfect. And he has the right, he has the authority to direct us according to his will. And it's only good and right for his glory and, and our good to just to do it, to submit ourselves under his will. This, mean, this means God basically becomes the, the captain of your soul, where he calls the shots. Before salvation, you lived as captain over your life. You ran the show, you made the decisions. You steered the ship, and you did it all for your own glory. But how did that work out for you? It doesn't work out well. You only find shipwreck because that's not your role. You're not meant to be the captain, even over yourself. God is the captain, and you're just his servant. 
You submit to him. You let him steer the ship, but that's the way you want it. Trust me, because he will lead you to smooth sailing and and safe harbor. But even Christians at times can usurp God's role and try and, you know, wrestle back the steering wheel and say like, I'm going to do this one my way. This decision is going to be me. I'm going to take control here. And God says, go right. But no, I I just want to go left. My will be done. And that's going to lead you to trouble and conflict, as we've learned. And so when will you realize the way of the transgressor is hard? Life is harder for those who go their own way. Like the prodigal learned the hard way. But the way of the Lord is life and peace. You know, this imagery, you know, picture a, a sailing ship. Christ is the captain. He's at the helm. He's steering the ship to safe harbor. On board are his people, the church. That includes you. You and everyone else is just a servant on this ship. But that, that's a happy place to be. For Christ, your captain meets your every need, keeps you safe, fulfills you. He loves you. You love him. But every now and then, you look overboard. And what do you see? You see the world, the sea of humanity swimming in the water. Sometimes it looks like they're having fun. Right? You know, they're splashing around, they're laughing, they're playing, living it up. And part of you longs to go in the water and join them. Because you, know, you came from the water after all. You used to be swimming around in the water with them. And you remember how you know, back then you were free to do whatever you wanted to do. The Lord rescued you, though. He pulled you out of the water, brought you on his boat, cleaned you off, made you a part of his crew. And now you're called to submit to the captain's will. And, you know, part of you is is happy to do that. You you know that. You believe that. You are happy to be on board. But look, a, a little part of you sometimes looks back at what you're missing. And the desires of your old flesh remain. But this is where you have to remember that you know, the freedom of the world in the water is not really freedom. It's slavery to sin, to the flesh. They're slaves to their own flesh. And meanwhile, submission to the captain, that's the place of freedom. When you submit yourself to the captain, you're free from sin. You're free from death. You're free from fear. You're free from judgment. And there's no better place to be. And also, you need to remember that those swimming in the world, they're not actually swimming. They're drowning. They just don't know it yet. It looks like they're having fun and living it up, but their time will run out. And the storm of God's judgment will come. They'll be found without harbor, without safety, and they'll be swept away. And the world is passing away, and also it's lusts. And so, you have to ask yourself, do you really want to be friends with them and just jump on in? And I'll tell you again, it's just, it's better on the boat. It's better in the father's house. His will is, it's good. The father's house is better. The fruit of the spirit is better than the deeds of the flesh. And speaking of Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You got to come to the point where you crucify those desires that want to take you overboard back into the ways of the world, that the selfishness 
of the world. It's possible for a true Christian to dip their toes in the water, to straddle the sides, splash around a little bit, but that's a precarious place. And like the prodigal, I would pray you come to your senses, get back fully on board. And you do that by first submitting to God. Get back to the place where you just, you you submit yourself and your will fully to his will. This is the first checkpoint on the path of peace. It's a path of restoration with God and others. And it starts with this commitment to submit your will to his will in all things. Number two is resistance. Resistance. And continuing in verse seven. Submit therefore to God. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Look at that pair of statements. Do you see all the contrasts in that pair of statements? We've got a contrast in commands. Resist versus draw near. Contrast in objects, the devil versus God. And then a contrast in results. As you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You Get this one straight. It's essential to getting right with God. The devil of here is, of course, the great adversary of God's people, the accuser. His goal is to separate God and man by leading you into his sin and rebellion. Most often, though, Satan works through the world system, which he empowers. First John five nineteen says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not hanging around with you. But through the evil world system, which he empowers, he can effectively tempt Christians all the time and influence Christians all the time. And this is why, again, James writes mostly against friendship with the world which is empowered by him. And no matter the source of temptation, though, the the right response is always to resist. Resist, he says. This word resist means to stand against. This is a call to stand against the devil and his multifaceted temptations. And what's, what's encouraging here when you think about what he says is that he affirms resistance is 100% possible. Right? Resistance against the devil is not futile. You need to know that Satan, he cannot make a single believer sin. You know that? You got that straight? Like, he cannot force any Christian to sin ever. He doesn't have that power. He can't hold a sinner against his will. Or in other words, he can't lead you into sin against your will. Instead, he only has the power to solicit, to tempt to persuade, and to influence. He's trying to guide your will according to his will. And if you give into that will, well, yeah, he will lead you into sin. But if you resist those temptations and his influences, well, he flees because there's nothing more he can do. And so practically then, what does this resistance look like? Well, I'll tell you, it's not mystical, It has nothing to do with, you know, commanding the devil all day and and saying, you know, devil, I command you to flee. It's not what this is about at all. 
Rather, Scripture consistently teaches that we resist the persuasions and influences of the devil as we stand firm in the faith. That's it. That's all you must do. Just stand firm in the faith. And as we flee temptation, well, so the devil flees from us. You know, Ephesians 6.13, it says, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Now, of course, the battle we're fighting here is not physical but spiritual. It's a truth war. And this is why the armor of God really stands for what? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God from Ephesians 6. Right? These are all the means by which we resist. Satan is trying to corrupt our thinking. And by corrupting your thinking, he will effectively bend your will to his will. And so oftentimes, through the world's influence, he's just getting you to buy a series of lies. He's changing what you value in life, what you think of as important. And if you buy these lies, you befriend the world, you let them influence you, well, you're going to follow his ways. But on the flip side, as you are rooted and grounded in the truth, you're going to resist and he will flee. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. You resist him by being firm in your faith. So this really goes back to submitting to God. God is captain. You obey him. You submit to his word. You fill your mind with it. And Christ himself left us that pattern, right? As he resisted the devil's temptations personally in the wilderness. And he did so by just wielding the truth of God's word to fight Satan's lies. And as a result, the devil left him. There's nothing more he could do. And so it goes with us. And so resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not quite enough, though. James pairs this with another command. He says, you must also now draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. R. Kent Hughes aptly observed that there are two views with which the Christian must become acquainted, the devil's back and God's face. And so don't resist God. Make sure that God is not the one you are resisting. Instead, just give in to him. Let his truth invade your mind. Just kind of open the gates. Let him take over. And do you want to experience the fullness of relationship with your heavenly father and just the joy of communion with him? Well, you need to draw near. Just just enter the father's house. Dwell with him. And functionally, this means employing all the means of grace God has given us to do so. We're talking to reading the word of God meditating on it, just drinking deeply from the fountain of his word. We're talking prayer where you're living in a daily communion with God in dependence on him. And even the church too, as you draw near to the saints, you fellowship with the saints in the body of Christ. Well, in so doing, you will be drawing near to the head 
of the body as well. And so this, this pair of actions puts you squarely on the path of peace. You know, by resisting the devil and by drawing near to God, you will be putting off sin. You will be putting on righteousness and, and then you will be bearing the fruit of that, which is peace. Your right relation to God will lead to a right relation with others. Just one problem here. And that is just practically in day-to-day life, all too many Christians do the opposite of what James tells us. Meaning, they draw near to the devil by befriending the world and they resist God. Does that describe you? And that's how they got into their mess. That, that's how they got into so much conflict and sin. They just, they've been taking the wrong side. They're like the prodigal. And they went after the world. They made bad choices. And now they're living in the consequences. Right? Their life is a mess. Their relationships are ruined. They're spiritually destitute. And look, that's what happens when you draw near to the devil and resist God. It doesn't go well for you. But again, there, there's hope. There's a way back. They've got to repent and return. You've got to start, start now resisting the devil and start drawing near to God. This is how the true believer will respond. Eventually, he or she will come to their senses and they will repent and return. The false believer, however, is the one who never really comes back. It's like Jesus said in John 3.20, they don't want to come to the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed, that they're, they're more comfortable in the darkness. And so in reality, the false believer may maintain a profession, but they perpetually resist God. They just live life resisting God and his will. You know, going back to that boat analogy, you know, there's some people swimming in the water of the world. And as the boat of Christ comes by, kind of latch onto the side, right? You know, they're still in the water. They're not in the boat, but like, like barnacles, they stick to the side. Why? Well, you know, for various reasons, they like to be associated with the boat. They like where the boat is headed. They want to go to heaven. Who doesn't? And they've got a lot of friends who are on the boat, but they don't really want to get in. They don't want to submit their lives to the captain and that they still really like it in the water. They can do whatever they want. But you have to know that when the boat reaches safe harbor, all the barnacles are scraped from the hull and thrown away. It's not enough to be around the things of the Lord. It's not enough to go to church, even read your Bible. That doesn't make you a Christian. You have to be in Christ by repentance, faith, submission. But if you are one who continually resists the Lord and his will and his ways, you're still squarely living in the world. Just beware. It's time for you to repent and return. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. And then think about that promise. As you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Do you maybe feel the absence of God's presence and joy in your life? Well, that's your fault. Not his. You draw near. He will draw near to you. For this to really happen, though, you've also got to make it through checkpoint number three. You've got to make it through all four. Checkpoint number three, though, is repentance. Thirdly now, repentance itself. James directly prescribes next repentance. 
He's talking to Christians in the church. And it's possible for them to stumble into the darkness. To commit a form of spiritual adultery. God is gracious. He will restore them, but they must repent and return. Like the prodigal, they've got to see their sin, see their rebellion, see the folly of their ways, and turn away and run back to Christ for forgiveness. And he will embrace them. It's like Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to our God, for he will have compassion, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Thankfully, ours is a God who pardons iniquity. But you have to forsake your old way. It's the way of self, the way of the world, the way of sin. And James puts repentance this way. Look in the middle of verse 8, if you're following along. He says after, cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a pretty straight-up barrage of commands that immediately evokes Psalm 24, which says, verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Of course, this reference to hands and hearts is a reference to your deeds and your desires. He says first, you got to wash your hands, meaning, you know, what have you done? What, what sins have you committed? What, what ways of folly are you living in? Well, turn away. Repent. Turn away from those and forsake those deeds. But you have to understand that's not enough. It's not enough just to stop doing bad things. Because as we've been learning, where, where do our sins come from? The sinful things we do, the conflict in our lives, what's the real source? We have found it's the heart, our own heart with its sinful, self-centered desires. And so those evil desires must be repented of as well. See how it's not enough just to stop doing a few bad things? You have to turn from even the desires within that you and I still have if you are going to change and be restored. And so to be on the path of peace, he says, you also have to purify your heart. Now, we know there's something we can't really do for ourselves. Who can cleanse their own heart? But we also know that such cleansing is made possible by Christ, who in fact already died to pay the price for our sins and to give us this cleansing. And if you're in Christ, he's already made you clean. But on a daily kind of practical level, what James is saying here is essentially no different than what John says in 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will restore you to that place of joy and fellowship, but you must repent. And so the path to peace with God and others involves owning your sin. You have to own the fact that you are a sinner indeed, and heart and that you've been double-minded and you need to turn away from that and turn to Christ. Turn from your double-mindedness. That's been a big theme in James where you can't have it both ways. You can't have a foot in the world and a foot in the church, a foot on the boat, a foot in the water. It doesn't work that way. You can't serve two masters. You have to choose 
today whom you will serve. And if you find you've been going the wrong way, well, repentance involves forsaking that way and turning back to God. And James continues, verse 9. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And what he means here, he's telling us just to take seriously our sin. That a godly sorrow is involved in true repentance. You know, the old Crystal Cathedral televangelist, Robert Schuller, he famously said, quote, there's no greater damage that can be done than to refer to the lost and sinful condition of man. End quote. I guess that works for his self-esteem gospel, but he must be reading another Bible because James is telling us in a right measure to feel bad over sin. He's not telling us to jump into a never-ending pit of self-loathing because we're a sinner. But look, we should never treat sin flippantly or lightly. Proverbs 10.23 says, doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. And the world laughs at sin. They rejoice in unrighteousness. It's, it's no big deal. In fact, they take delight in their wicked ways. And in turn, they, they ridicule those who follow God. But when your repentance is real, one way you know is that all that laughter stops. It's now pretty serious. Because you see yourself not compared to that person next to you. You see yourself compared to God's holy and perfect righteous standard. And you realize you're drowning and you don't even come close. And the, the sin you're swimming in, it's not a laughing matter anymore. For that moment, you feel the weight of your sin and the depth of condemnation you deserve because you've betrayed the captain. And really the problem with most people in the church today is that they don't take sin seriously enough. In an effort to be like the world and be accepted by the world, that involves, well, we can joke about sin too. It's not that big of a deal. We don't want to be all like uptight and not fun. But I tell you, when your repentance is real, there's nothing more serious than your sin. And so as you stray into sin, repent. Take that seriously. Have a godly grief over what you've done in deed and heart, and then you forsake it. And then, look, there's glory here. Because don't forget, Jesus already died in our place to take away our condemnation, to take away our gloom, right? This is why we don't need to perpetually mourn. In fact, as quickly as you turn to Christ, he replaces your mourning with gladness, because he's already taken away our sin. And that's the glory of the gospel. It's not just a, a message of bad news, feel bad, you're a bad person, that's it. It's just, well, recognize your sin, but then rejoice. Because the Savior has already come and died to forgive you and to, to cleanse you, to, to bring you near. And so let that glory drive you to repentance even faster. You know, the father's heart, he rejoices when a sinner repents. He will run to you, so to speak, and reconciliation, but you must repent. And look, everyone will eventually mourn over their sins, right? Many laugh at sin now, but when the day of judgment comes, they will be mourning. Only they will find no relief. Theirs will become a, an eternal mourning. 
And it's far better to mourn over your sin now by recognizing it, owning your rebellion, and turning to Christ. Because he, he will take that and turn it into joy. Christ himself said the same thing in Luke 6, 21 and 25. He said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Either you humble yourself and you repent now, finding the everlasting joy of forgiveness and salvation, or you'll be humbled later in judgment and you will find nothing but gloom. And this fact brings us to our last checkpoint, number four. It's humility. Lastly here, humility. Finishing in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Like I said back in verse 6, God is opposed to the proud. Those who take delight in their sin, they're still laughing about it. They're thumbing their nose at God. They're in the water. They're making fun of everyone on the boat, right? They're living in open rebellion. God will humble those people. He has a way of humbling those who walk in pride, ultimately in judgment. The nail that sticks up, that stands out, gets hammered down. But those who humble themselves before God, they find grace, mercy, and forgiveness. They even find exaltation, right? Humble yourself. He will exalt you. It's like the prodigal. I mean, we don't deserve love or acceptance, or forgiveness, but because of Christ's sacrifice, that's what we get. It doesn't even stop there, though, because on top of just reconciliation, we receive a form of exaltation, right? Put a ring on his finger, give him the best robe, kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. I mean, do you see how God adorns us with eternal riches? We don't deserve any of this. We deserve to just drown. We've, we chose that. All of this is undeserved, which is why we return all of his favor to us in just ceaseless praise. And so again, we can ask, you know, what kind of God is this? What other God is like this? You know, the parable of the prodigal from the beginning, it actually goes on to mention another character, the older brother at the end. And the older brother, he is just filled with bitterness and anger over his younger brother's restoration. Because it's just not fair. After all he did, he squandered the inheritance, went after the world. Then he just comes back and he's, he's forgiven. He's then accepted and then exalted. That's just not fair. And so he's angry. And you know what? The older brother is, in a way, right. It's not fair. But it's grace. That's what we call grace. And you should thank God that he is a God of grace. But also know only the humble will experience his grace. Recognize your sin. Acknowledge your spiritual poverty. Understand your need for Christ. And then you just fall down before the captain and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That cry will be heard. And you will receive all the grace you need for salvation and even for sanctification. It's through this daily humility, this daily walking in humble dependence on God that, that we find the grace we need for our daily growth. And so you put all this together now, submission, 
resistance, repentance, and humility. And that's the path of peace, we could say. You return to the Father's house. You bow to the captain's will. You'll be restored to him. And then a remarkable thing will happen. You find that as you get right with God by walking in his ways and returning to him, he will put you right with others in your life. Right? Your fights, your conflicts, we've been learning, they come from when your will is not done. When your selfish will is frustrated, you fight, you quarrel. But you know, that changes when you stop living for your will. You start living for God's will. And don't get me wrong, others will still sin against you, tempt you, even incite you. But you see, when you're no longer living just to get your own way, you're going to pursue a path of peace where you don't need to fight back or defend yourself because you didn't get your way. That's what we normally do, right? But now you just need to trust God. You submit to his will. He'll he'll judge the wicked person. You don't need to worry about that. But just put everything we've learned into practice, and you will start to see the flames of conflict die down in life. At least the ones you contribute to will die down. And if just everyone in the church would put all of this into practice, where we are that people on board the ship, happily in submission to the captain, you're going to see a, a profound unity on board. It's the same unity that, that Christ promised. It comes with harmony and peace, and it leads to pretty smooth sailing and making a lot of ground. And it leads to a, a powerful witness to the world that the Christ wants and, and, and declare that this ship should be. And so now it's really time for us to put everything we've learned over these past three weeks from James 4 into practice. For us, as James says, to now be doers of the word and not merely hearers. This, this is the path of peace in your lives with God, with others. And so I pray we resolve now to live as peacemakers, that we might give glory to our great God and Father who gave us his peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do glorify and magnify your name now this morning. It's hearing your word. We desire for your name to be exalted in the name of your son, the name above all names. For you're worthy and we are not. Lord, we all have taken the course of living for ourselves, our will and our own name, seeking to exalt our name in life, living life purely for our own pleasure and our will. And it has gotten us into nothing but trouble. And we find ourselves just drowning in sin and separation from you. And the way of the world is indeed hard and, and it leads only to death. But we, we praise you this morning as we remember you, our God and Savior, who sent Christ to die, to rise, to rescue people like us, sinners who were lost. And Lord, you call us to yourselves. You, you bring us aboard. You, you make us new. You give us a new hope, a new future a new destination, and that, that's a glorious thing. And I pray these truths lead us to a happy submission to the captain of our soul's will. That's where we want to be, Lord. And, and as we live our lives just for you, following your ways, which are good, we will experience the peace you promise with you daily and even with others. This is the way. It's better on board. It's better 
in the Father's house. Convict us this morning, Lord, and then cause us to repent and return. May we all daily draw near to you and then watch and joy as you draw near to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.